Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of The Broadcast, our regular podcast to discuss pensions and savings. I'm your host, David Brooks, and I'm Technical Director here at Broadstone, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Meadows, who's Head of Proposition. You'll have noticed we took a short break over Christmas and into the new year, in part because I became a father for the third time. So we had a busy December, then the baby came, then the December, and then I've been a bit busy since then, obviously working uh, as well. But um, that's our excuse. So we're, we're back up and running, so hopefully we'll continue with these over the year. Um, and we also have a guest with us later, Chris Halewood from uh, 2020 Trustees, talk about member communications, and so we'll introduce him and he can introduce himself a little bit more uh, later on. Okay. Congratulations, Dave, by the way. Yeah. We can go into this podcast without saying congratulations, can we? <laughs> no, well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a crazy time having a, well, my daughter, my eldest daughter, I have to say eldest daughter now, I can't get used to saying that. She was 11 yesterday and my son's 12 and then I've got a, whatever it is, 11 week old as well. Crazy times. Wow. Crazy times. Well, it. Uh, it's not a time known for loads of sleep, is it? So uh, hopefully everyone will excuse us <laughs> if we're a bit less coherent than normal this morning. Yeah, maybe. My voice is always that, that sort of deep. I normally have this when I'm hungover, kind of a bit of a, a lower, deeper voice because I'm tired. But yeah, I've got that all the time now for the next year or so. OK, so um, this time we're going to just talk about one uh, topic normally we take a couple of um, topical items to to talk about but we really can't talk about anything other than the conflict uh, in Ukraine that's happening right now um, obviously an absolute tragedy for the people over there um, and our thoughts are with them um, but we also can't ignore it for the impact on pensions and savings and so we're going to talk about that very much from that perspective um, and so Thinking about this, there's been a lot of talk in the press and there's been a lot of talk even from government and regulators on what members and trustees uh, should be doing. So we're going to take take it in two, two sort of sections, one looking at what members might be thinking about and one what trustees um, might be thinking about as well. So, um, Rachel, if we can come to you and just talk about what you think um, members are thinking about and what they, what, they sh- what they are thinking about and what they should be thinking about um, in regards to their DC uh, savings. Thanks, Dave. So I think the main thing that we've seen uh, with uh, pension members with DC savings is them actually sort of scrambling to try to understand where their pensions are actually invested. So it's one of the things that we talk about often, you know, is that members in DC schemes in particular often stay invested in the default fund and they often don't really understand exactly what that means. Where's it invested geographically? What does that mean by sector? What does that mean? Um, and so whenever there's something, um, you know, big topic uh, like this, which has got obviously far reaching impacts, but far reaching emotional impacts as well. And people feel you know, quite strongly about where they would want their money invested. Um, we see members trying to get that improvement in terms of their understanding. So I think the first thing is um, seeing a, a big increase in questions uh, both to advisors and um, invest, investment uh, fund managers about exactly what assets in the default funds particularly actually have direct exposure to Russia in particular and to the Ukraine, of course. Um, but also understanding what the indirect impacts are as well, because I think no matter where you're invested, 
everyone will have seen their um, the fund values uh, fall over recent weeks. We've seen a massive increase in global uncertainty, uh, you know, without digressing from Ukraine, you know, extra lockdowns in China also having an impact. So there's plenty of uncertainty about. Um, it's worth noting, really, that most DC default funds are not heavily invested in Russia. So most default funds will have a very, very marginal exposure. And we're seeing fund managers trying to disinvest from those areas where possible. Now, I say where possible because that isn't always straightforward. If you're going to sell um, stocks, you need uh, buyers, you need functioning markets. So in some cases, uh, that's OK. In other cases, fund managers are having to wait so that they don't disadvantage the funds or so that they can practically act uh, action those transactions as well. So that that's a big thing in terms of questions and understanding where you're saving. I think the biggest um, practical impact in terms of those with DC savings is for those who are nearing retirement or those who are nearing a big lifestyle event or where their funds are going to start de-risking perhaps on the way uh, through to retirement. And it makes it even more important than ever, really, that people who are considering taking the benefits or making a big change to their pension investments take some advice so that they're considering, well, what are the impacts of doing that at this time? Because if you were going to buy an annuity uh, or going to draw down and take out your tax-free cash in the next couple of weeks, whilst markets are down, that might mean that you deplete your fund more than you need to or that you uh, buy an annuity with a depressed uh, fund value. So it might be that if you are approaching one of those key decision points or if your members are approaching those key decision points, that it's really important you signpost them for some guidance and advice. And in most cases, um, it, the best guidance and advice will be to, to hang fire a little bit wait and see, um, or to um, consider uh, you know, partial withdrawals rather than fully taking your tax-free cash in one go, for example. For those younger in their savings journey, uh, the best advice normally whenever there's any big volatility, uh, including uh, the situation in Ukraine, is, is normally to wait and see. Uh, the only difference would be if you're a member who's uh, specifically picked a uh, fund which is heavily invested in Russia, which there aren't very many of those, um, so that would be quite unusual, uh, but they would be the people that would be most impacted. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about when these managers are selling off, I was just trying to think, what what is the motivation for doing it? Is it is it because of the impact of the sanctions on the fund value, or is it more just the reputational risk of, seeing as being investing in Russia and that being seen as a, a bad thing at the moment. What's your sense on, on that? I think that's a really good point. And it's actually quite a complex issue. Um, and we've seen a lot of um, companies themselves and global brands either mm. trying to sell uh, businesses uh, or sell their Russian operations or to suspend trading. You know, some of the big brand names have suspended trading in Russia. Mm. Um, it's worth noting that not all of them have got that ability. So if they're operating in the likes of Russia through a franchise system, um, that often doesn't give them the ability, the same brand control as they have um, if they had their own company. Uh, trading mm. in that country to be able to to suspend operations and if you are a company um, and you're looking to sell uh, arms to business that are based in Russia for example you can only do that if you've got a buyer that's willing to buy there's likely to be very few of those mm. and so there might be a practical limit on how quickly you can take action 
if you just left those businesses, you know, I guess it's likely that they'd be taken over or the operation would be taken over by the Russian state. So you you might uh, actually have a worse brand impact by indirectly funding uh, funding a war uh, than if you actually just kept kept trading through. So really, mm. really complex. Mm. Um, I think for fund managers, it's an extension of the same issues. So they're looking at trying to manage volatility um, within the portfolios. They don't want members to experience too much volatility. They're looking at long-term um, impacts. So pension investments are long-term in their nature. So uh, I guess sanctions are an immediate impact but that, that are going to actually carry on uh, having an impact for some time to come. So that that's also relevant. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And David, from the defined benefit side of the equation, um, mm. what are we seeing trustees doing? Um, well, similar on the investment front, trustees are very conscious of the volatility um, and liquidity in, in, in their investments. And I think, and likewise, the exposure to Russia is relatively small, um, but we've seen the managers making um, moves to, to move out of the, the holdings in recent weeks. But I think the, the issue for trustees is it's similar to to what happened with the, the start of the COVID, you know, pandemic when the markets really dropped, is just taking stock. You know, any asset transfers, any any decisions or any hedging that, that you know any strategic decisions that are happening right now are being delayed. You know, you don't want to be selling at the, the worst possible time. So it's if it's not time critical, then we're seeing lots of trustees just take stock, take a breath, um, and wait for things to, to settle down a, a little bit more. Um, but one of the other things that's come up, you know, lots of trustees have, have contacted myself, you know, asking about, you know, the, the ESG considerations, you know, not wanting to be investing in in Russia. And and, um, and that's becoming much more of a conversation and a conversation that's been happening over the last 18 months or so anyway. But it's just one of those things that's really brought it to a head. You know, and you do have those conversations of, you know, how much Russia exposure do we have? The answer is, as you say, very little. But um, but it's, t- it's taking stock of that, and so it's, it's brought that conversation uh, to a head. But there's lots of other things for trustees to think about, not just uh, investment. So the you know the whole funding conversation. So employer covenant, understanding the potential impacts on your sponsor, depending on what sector they're in or what lo- location they operate in, supply chains, those kind of things, especially impacting in the in the region, in the wider region. So. Asking questions of your, your sponsor is something spe- um, to do, especially talking to your um, covenant advisor if you've got one as well, um, especially doing uh, definitely doing that. Um, and then talking to the scheme actuary, because that's where all these things come together and the impact on the funding. Um, and also things like the transfer value basis are going to be impacted. There's also lots of other things going on at the same time, as you alluded to as well. There's lots of geopolitical issues, but there's also high inflation at the moment. You know, interest rates are moving, potential for interest rates to move more. So, so this, all this, um, the, the conflicts and everything, all feeds into into this whole picture of, of a quite a, a difficult period for, for trustees to, to 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 navigate through. And then, as you mentioned, impact on members. So, lots of trustees are considering whether to issue uh, a member communications to either uh, you know give some guidance to members on what they might be doing if they're approaching retirement or a lifestyling window. And we've had it in, in defined benefit schemes who are normally fairly quiet on investment strategy. And we might talk to Chris about this a bit later on, um, you know, considering writing to members to explain what the trustees position is, what they've been doing. I've seen a few announcements from public sector pension schemes saying, you know, what we're doing, 
divesting from Russia or as much as they can. As, again, as you noted, you know, some of there are restrictions around what you can and can't do um, because of the investments that you're in. So that'd be interesting to see what Chris says on you know contacting members. We're also concerned about um, scams. So anytime there's any uncertainty, scammers come out of the woodwork and we'll use that to, to, to sow some fear with members. So again, we're, we're seeing schemes considering writing to members to advise them about scams. And also writing to members who may have just physical exposure to either a Russian bank or a Ukrainian, you know, um, area if they just happen to be a citizen from that area and, and also a member of a pension scheme. So um, that's one thing as well we're we're monitoring. Um, and then finally, sort of more operational, asking advisors what what they're doing. Again, we've learned a lot of lessons from from COVID that, that you know op services will continue through through most um, events and so just making sure that your advisors aren't impacted by this um and also cyber attack we're all being alerted to the fact that the russian cyber attacks might be something that that they consider doing i've seen some websites going down over recent days not in the pension sector but just generally so again making sure that your advisors are reassuring you that their systems are robust enough to, to defend themselves against any any would-be cyber attack so there's a lot a lot going on Certainly plenty for trustee meeting agendas, isn't there? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, and we're expecting it to be, you know, we're in, in March now. Um, this is trustee meeting season and um, we've got a, a checklist for trustees to, to work through. A lot of those issues that I've just noted are on that and more, you know, just, just to, you know, it's almost good, good governance just to go through it. You know, have the conversation. If there's impact is nil, fantastic, then, then carry on. But there will be cases where there will be some, some action to do. And so have the conversation, do the, do the, the right thing think about it and then, then decide what's right for your scheme. No, absolutely. Well, I think that ties us in um, really nicely to bring in our guest, um, Chris Hellwood from 2020 Trustees. Morning, Chris. Hi. Hi, Rachel. Hi, David. <laughs> Hi, Chris. So we we're hoping to have a chat with you this morning, Chris, uh, just to discuss what it is that members are looking for from trustees and their employer pension scheme sponsors. Yeah, sure. I mean, are we talking particularly, do you think, in defined benefit schemes here or defined contribution or do you sort of got any thoughts around, you know, either of those two or both of those? I think a bit of both. I think a bit yeah. of both where it's relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Did you want to yeah. just comment on Ukraine? What, you're, what are you seeing from your perspective at the moment? Yeah, well, initially what we've had is the sort of the standard things that tend to happen when these, um, you know, sort of tragic global events occur. Um, we have a similar thing, not that I'm trying to suggest the two things are in any way um, similar or related, but from the regulator when um, obviously COVID-19 came out, mm. um, a similar thing in terms of trustees taking stock of the risk within the pension scheme, the exposure um, within the pension scheme and so on. We've seen exactly the same in terms of the Ukraine crisis. So the regulator writing out to trustees to ask them to look at uh, the sponsor's exposure to Russia and the potential implications there um, in terms of the, you know being able to support the pension scheme, particularly on a defined benefit pension scheme where that's, that's more of a risk. Um, but also from an investment perspective as well, um, both defined benefits and defined contribution, looking at the exposure that the funds might have um, to any investments within Russia um, directly, but in theory indirectly, although that is far more complicated. Mm. And, you know, I, th I think it's perhaps not that surprising that the direct exposure to investments within Russia is very, very low within you know the vast majority of pension schemes you're talking, you know, a couple of percent at the very most, and actually most of them are significantly below that, even well below 1% in, in quite a lot of schemes. It's the indirect exposure that is, is actually quite um, a lot more complicated 
to to really get a feel for. Uh, and that's just because of the complexities of the way that trade operates around the globe. You know, in, in, in fairness, we we are probably all in the UK um, contributing to the Russian economy in some way through you know driving our cars, switching our heating on. All of these things um, indirectly is probably contributing still even now, even even after you know the Ukraine crisis has, has emerged. Um, it's probably still contributing to some extent um, to the Russian economy. So that these these trains and trails and everything else are really extremely complicated and there are also an awful lot of businesses that still indirectly um, have connections you know to, to Russia um, and, that, and that's quite hard to get under the bonnet and really understand exactly what's going on in terms of those you know the, the supply chain arrangements and all these sorts of things so um, yeah so what and what are you seeing um, you know respect of contacting members you know proactively or even reactively I suppose if members are coming to you first yeah, so on defined benefit pension schemes, we are sending out notices where we've got, so if we've got a member newsletter due up, or we've got a, state, a summary funding statement or something that we're issuing out to members, we are taking that opportunity um, to include uh, something within that to talk to them about the Ukraine crisis from a security of benefits perspective, really, um, to try and reassure the members. I've personally not had on any of my schemes members getting in touch uh, with me or the administrators. I'm not suggesting that hasn't happened on any schemes, but I certainly haven't seen that en masse. So I'm not sure that pension scheme members, certainly at large, are joining the dots between what's going on in Ukraine and their pension scheme and where that's invested. And that might actually, in fairness, be um, connected to something we may go on to discuss a bit later on, which is member engagement with pensions and necessary members' understanding of, of pensions and where they might be invested. So I'm, I'm not sure they've quite connected those those dots, if I'm honest. And and actually might be quite surprised that there is even any exposure at all to Russia within within their pension scheme. They might not even really appreciate that. Um, so yeah, we're, we've not not done anything in terms of um, you know being proactive, if you want to say that, really in ter in terms of other than in standard communications where they've got the opportunity to say something. But that's only because we're not seeing members raising any particular concerns around around this. Um, obviously, if we were then quite rightly we would you know, be contacting those members and the wider membership to, to reassure them. Um, yeah. Sorry, I don't know if you wanted to, you know, well, you, you noted member engagement. Let's, let's talk about, do you want to talk about that? Well, what are you, what are you, you know, what are you seeing? Member engagement levels, are they improving? Are they going down? Is that the sort of thing you're thinking about? Yeah, it, it does vary, to be honest, and it really varies as to, to some extent, how engaged the sponsor is. So if the sponsor is really engaged with the pension scheme and they're willing to support that member engagement, then not only is that engagement a lot higher, but that you're also seeing the benefits of that engagement. So it's not just engagement for engagement's sake. You're actually seeing, um, I know Rachel was talking about default fund usage earlier, you're seeing the default fund usage come down. So having a high proportion of people in a default fund is not necessarily in itself an issue or a problem. But actually, if that's because of, of, of people just being in there because they can't be bothered or they don't think about doing something different, then that is a problem. So we often find that where sponsors support member engagement, you do see a reduction in the exposure to the default fund within the membership um, because they are engaging with the investments. They're making some choices um, and they're obviously switching out of the default fund into something that they feel is more suitable to their own particular circumstances. And objectives and, and you know that that's really down to the sponsor supporting that because these things could, do come at a cost but i do think there's then also a benefit for that um spend you know where you see you get improved member engagement you obviously 
Um, not, not only will members hopefully get a better outcome as a result of that engagement, but actually the, the sponsor will also then get a better outcome because the members will be happier about their pension arrangement. They'll value it more. Um, and also, actually, when it comes to the to um, you know the, the need to actually have some staff turnover when they reach retirement, there might also be more opportunity for that to actually happen because members will have hopefully. Uh, you know, a, a decent retirement pot. It's not just about investments. It's really, actually, in my mind, it's even more important this engagement with contribution levels um, because, you know, you can get the best investment returns available within a typical sort of pension fund. But ultimately, if you're not paying very much in or sufficient in, then, then actually that's where the real issues arise, if I'm honest. So um, it's really about engagement across the whole piece, contribution levels, investment returns, what you're thinking about doing with your fund at retirement, all of those sorts of things. Um, are already equally important. Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting debate, that one, isn't it? Because I think it's a really common misconception about investment returns. And I think that one of the ways that I've heard that described to members, which was quite effective, is thinking about your contributions as being what makes the cake and the investment return adds. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, compound interest, I think, was described as the eighth wonder of the world. And, you know, that that's to some extent probably true. Um, but ultimately, if you're only compounding from a very small starting point, you're not going to reach, you know, a very big end point. Um, and and often, quite often members do only engage when, I wouldn't say it's too late, but um, it becomes quite painful in terms of the levels of contributions that they need to make into the pensions. There's so many calls upon you know, people's demands. I mean, David's just mentioned that, you know, he's just had the third child there. So, you know, got even more calls upon uh, his finances there. But, you know, he's not, he's not alone in that. You know, everybody, whether they've got children or, or people that they need to financially support or not, they've all got calls upon their, you know, their finances. And it is difficult. But quite often the pensions are, are seen as the something I'll sort out later in life or something I'll sort out tomorrow. And it's just put to one side. Um, and then is often forgotten. And that's why engagement is important, because it reminds people that that thing is there, that they need to do something about and just prompts them. Is, is that one of the key things, really, in your experience that members are looking to trustees and employers to provide them is almost that translation and a better understanding of how important their pension is or what their contributions actually mean. So if they've got that amount going out of their pay each month, what's that actually going to mean when it comes to retirement? So are you, for example, seeing any increase in things like um, using the PLSA retirement living standards to try and bring that to life for members? Yeah, I mean, there's a, a whole variety, really, of um, sort of information that's available to help support those those sort of communication programmes. But, yeah, anything that can help, um, as you say, bring it to life really is quite useful because if, if it's just sort of basic numbers, um, or even just, in fact, even worse, if it's just words on a page, actually that, that doesn't really engage with people. But if you can get something into diagrams, um, something visual, that anything like that is really quite quite useful and quite helpful. Something that's, you know, you've probably only got from the moment in that envelope, the first sort of 10 seconds probably, before that piece of paper either finds its way to the coffee table and then the bin, or just straight into the bin. Um, you know, and, and if you don't grab them within that first sort of 10 seconds or whatever, I mean, you know, there'll be experts out there who'll tell you whether the 10 seconds is exactly right, but you can understand the principle of what I'm saying. You know, if you don't grab their attention um, early on, then I think you've missed that sort of opportunity, to be quite honest. So, yeah, something something visual. And I'm using, I'm, because I'm, I'm very old school, I'm talking about pieces of paper through the post, but obviously these things will be emails and whatever else it might be. So it, it won't necessarily be the coffee table uh, and then the bin. It'll actually just be sat in their inbox and then deleted. Um, it's, it's probably the more modern way of looking at that. Yeah, or even a personalised video member statement, which seems well, to be yeah. the direction of travel these days, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, are, are you are you using or different media or different methods to try to get through to people? Yeah, I mean, these things are obviously much more common, you know, in the defined contribution um, side yeah. of things, really, where we're mm. talking about here. I've got two defined contribution schemes. One's a very old legacy scheme um, that is going to be going through this value for money assessment that's coming uh, coming down the pipe now. Um, whereas the other scheme is actually currently being used for auto enrolment, so it's a sort of active scheme. And on that particular scheme, yes, we are using different sort of media to get in touch with the membership. On the legacy scheme, in fairness, we're not. Um, but that that's really because... You know, again, the sponsor it is engaged with the scheme to some extent, but obviously there's a limited budget and, you know, the spend will automatically quite rightly go to the schemes that they see as the ones for the current staff, not the staff who were there, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, so that that's perhaps why the value for money assessment that, you know, is, is, is there. That That is really the purpose of that. And that's why there's some value to perhaps doing those sorts of assessments on those schemes. But, yeah, we are using a variety of, of different sort of media on, uh, on, on you know, sort of what I'd call the sort of modern type defined contribution schemes that are out there yeah and i was just you know thinking about the sort of the take-up rates you know if you have like a you know a nice member website do you have a feel for what the current what 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 does good look like because you know lots of schemes put things in place and then the take-up is is mixed at best but what do you think is is good at the moment what you know across your membership yeah, I have to be honest with you. I wouldn't have those um, sort of figures to hand, really. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's all right. It's a, well, it's a very good question, actually. And it's it's probably something that um, is a challenge for me to go off and actually look. I, I suppose that the difficulty is when, when we say take-up rates, you need to have something to compare that to, don't you? That's the difficulty because I wouldn't know whether you say what does good look like, and that is the difficulty because you can only if you're only seeing it in your scheme, you, you've got to have a comparator to know whether that actually is good or isn't good. So, you know, if there's industry standards out there or there's averages, um, but I guess you've got to look at them, whether, you know, that system is, is that system that you're comparing it to the same as the one you're using? Does it cost the same? You know, do you, are you spending the same per, per head and so on? So there's, you know, there's no point comparing, um, you know, a sort of top of the range system that costs three times as much as the system you're using, because that's not really a fair necessarily a fair comparison albeit it could be a useful comparison to get the employer to think about the additional spend to improve the system that you're using mm. uh, so yeah i mean I'd, I'd probably bounce the question back david whether you've got some because <laughs> to what good looks like <laughs> uh no no i don't actually and i've just noted that i'm going to try and find out i'm going yeah, to try and find I out if there's any, anyone speaking out there yeah because you're right i mean we often we often do these things because we think and assume that they're good and there's some value but mm. what we need to do is measure you know, whether that value is actually coming through. Um, and, and that's one of my sort of issues and bugbears a little bit as a trustee is that there's an awful lot going on at the moment with compliance around certain things that are, are initially come from a starting point from the regulator of member improvement, but actually don't always necessarily finish there. They tend to finish with the tick box bit and actually, you know, as, a, as an example, you know, talking about things like statements, investment principles and all these other things and chair statements that you've got to put into your accounts. Well, that's great. But actually, not many members ask for the accounts or read the accounts. And I appreciate trustees could do shortened accounts and push these things out to members. I get that. But most of the regulations and requirements stop short of actually making it useful to the members. It's all about doing it, but not actually what's what's the benefit of doing it. So great that you've done all these things, but what's it really achieving? Uh, and that's where we often fall short. So your point to actually measure the success of these different things that we're using to communicate with members is, is actually the most valid bit. Is is it actually having the effect you want it to have? Mm. 
I think that's most difficult in the defined benefits space as well, isn't it? Where you're not necessarily looking at, you know, a small number of platforms and a small number of arrangements. Each scheme uh, potentially has got its own its own support system and its own bespoke uh, communication strategy in place um, with members. Mm. I guess it's easier to be able to talk to that in the DC space where we can look to, you know, a lot of the insured platforms, um, contract-based schemes, and even a lot of the master trust arrangements where we can get better, you know, better universal statistics where, you know, in a normal scheme where there's not a lot of engagement from the employer and therefore not a lot of engagement from the members, You'll be looking at online access uh, usage statistics in the single digits, whereas uh, for a scheme where uh, the employers engaged and involved and they're arranging things like pension roadshows and newsletters and access to one to one guidance meetings. And you'll see online access um, go up, you know, t- towards the halfway mark um, and even beyond uh, in terms of the number of number or percentage of people are accessing their uh, pension information online in a given year so it can, it can make a radical difference yeah. mm. so we're seeing it more in the db space sorry to chris talk over just a sec but you know especially on pe- pensioners mainly is pensioners are being encouraged to use online services more to save cost on sending pay slips out so actually we're seeing that as a bit of a growth you know area to 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 communicate with, with pensioners it's getting the deferreds in i don't know whether the pensions dashboard is going to be the catalyst for a bit more engagement from members who may have had a defined benefit scheme years ago and now in a DC scheme, get on the dashboard, see their current scheme there and then see that old pension scheme that they that they're actually interested in, you know, that they may have forgotten about or overlooked the value of because they haven't heard from it. You know, the last thing they got was their leaving service statement, you know, 30 years ago or something. So I think that's might be a side success of the dashboard, although I don't necessarily want to get into the dashboard too much. And as Chris does, it's a bit of a... Oh, I don't know. Topic anyway. of right, isn't it? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, probably the only, the only point I'd, I'd probably want to talk about a little bit on the dashboard is that at the moment, and, and for understandable reasons, all of the focus is very much on how the industry is going to comply with the requirements for getting this information there when, you know, when, well, they don't put the information on the dashboard, they send it there when it's requested, but, you know, um, yeah. how are they going to be able to comply with all this? But what I'm, what I'm not really sure about is what's going to be done to tell members and make them aware that this thing even exists. So it's all well and good that, the, you know, again, we're back to this same, you know, what's the, what, what will it achieve if nobody actually knows of the existence of this dashboard and what are the requirements on trustees, pension providers to tell members about the existence of this thing and how are we going to get people to engage with it? So we could end up with, we, I don't know if we will, but we could in a utopia situation end up with a fantastic system that works and every single provider, even the legacy ones, can, can fulfil the data requirements. That would be great if we get there. But actually, if nobody ever goes it logs in or very few people log in and request something what what's that really achieving what's that helping you know i don't know they're um, hoping for that if you build it they will come <laughs> i don't know yeah, maybe yeah maybe well, I think, yeah. yeah there must be there'll be must be something though because pension schemes will be like well we've spent loads of money sorting our data out and the providers have spent a lot, a lot of time and effort getting the matching side of it sorted there's almost a vested interest in all of us to, to say to members look go look at this amazing thing you know, you don't you'd have to ask us questions. You can just look at this yeah. wonderful website that does it all does it all for you, maybe. Yeah. And I think just going back to your point on, on defined benefit schemes and, you know, starting to use um, online platforms and things, I think that's very important. Because I think defined benefit schemes now have to start to recognise that they are just one piece in the jigsaw for a member. If you go mm. back, you know, 20, 30 years or whatever, 
by and large, people were in defined benefit pension schemes. And even if they hadn't stayed in one scheme for the whole of their working life, they'd moved from scheme to scheme. Overall, collectively, those schemes were probably going to sort that person's retirement out. So there wasn't necessarily that much need. Um, there were individual pockets, yes, but I mean, generally speaking, there wasn't that much need for members to engage because the pension scheme did the job for them. Mm. Whereas now, defined benefit schemes have to recognise that there's a very good chance that everyone who's coming to retirement has not got defined benefit schemes everywhere else. They've probably got defined contributions that have got to link in with this DB scheme. So they've almost got a bit of a duty of care that even though in, it, in itself the defined benefit scheme maybe doesn't have an awful lot to offer the member in terms of choices and so on, they have to understand that it affects the choices that a member makes in their other arrangements that will be defined contribution. So they've almost got a, you know, a role to play in that, in supporting that person and that individual in saying, well, actually, you've already got some secured benefits here. You know, this is what it can offer you. This is the shape of what it can offer you. These are the options that you can have in terms of the benefits of retirement. And you need to factor that in when you're making your decisions on the risk that you're taking and your defined contribution or whether you're buying an annuity, whether you're going to draw down, whatever it might be. Um, because it's a really important bit like the state pension. It's a really important piece of the jigsaw, you know, and it, all, it does all need to be joined up. Yeah, that's a really excellent point, Chris. Mm. And I think that that is an evolution in the direction of travel, isn't it? Because I think even where trustees and sponsoring employers have done you know, great financial education for members in the past, it has probably been quite focused on the benefits that they've got within that defined benefit arrangement rather than that standing back and almost showing a member, well, yeah, this is how your benefit works within the defined benefit arrangement, but this is where it sits and amongst the complexity of other things that you've built up during your working life. And, you know, again, harking back to one of your earlier points about everything that we're talking about being in pounds and pence and numbers, but actually for real people, most of their retirement goals don't hinge around pounds, pence and numbers. You know, most people don't have, you know, an aspiration to, have a pension of £20,000 a year or £30,000 a year, what, what they've got an aspiration to do is be able to go on holiday a couple of times a year, have a takeaway once a fortnight, go out for dinner, you know, join a club. It, they're real life practical objectives, exactly. aren't they? Exactly. It's, it's, it's about what it does, not what it is. And, you know, I, I've, I've used an analogy and I'm not, I always use analogies and some of them aren't very good. The odd one is OK. But, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like if you, if you walk into a supermarket and you pick up a, a packet of frozen cauliflower, they don't just have a picture of frozen cauliflower on the front. They'll actually have a picture of a meal of which the cauliflower is a part of it. So you can actually see where it fits into, you know, I appreciate people, everyone should understand what cauliflower is, but ultimately <laughs> just showing them a picture of cauliflower. They're like, well, that's great, but what do we do with it? So they actually quite often will show images of, well, here it is with a nice steak or a piece of fish or whatever, you know, it might be a vegetable lasagna, let's say, um, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I've got to tick every box here. <laughs> yeah. You can so, tell you work in financial services because we're coming back to the comments or the caveats, aren't we, about yeah. this is a serving suggestion only. Yeah, yeah. So yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Your calorie intake may go up as well as down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, so I just think that is, you know, it's, it's sort of using that analogy. This is where pension providers like, you know, say DB schemes, particularly where they, they might say, well, we don't need to worry about investment risk for the members because we're, we're taking that risk. We can support it. We don't need to think about options at retirement because the, the scheme does what it does. Well, that's great, but you do need to see how it fits into their wider um, you know, financial uh, provision at retirement. It'll be interesting, I, um, just thinking through what you're saying, be interesting because I was just thinking about the stronger nudge. You know, so that's going to be a new bit for 
for members of DB schemes potentially, you know, with their AVCs, is you know, it's not entirely clear how it will fit in into our, into the comms at the moment. But you could imagine, as the point you're making, you know, very well about DB, this DB being a part of a bigger meal. You know, we might need to see more information on a DB statement. The government might say, okay, the stronger nudge is great, where you know there's DC. But where you know there's a high chance there's DC, then maybe you do need to be saying something in there about if you've got DC benefits, then yeah. you know, consider going to, to, to PensionWise or Money Money Helper or whatever the name is now. I get confused. You know, yeah. perhaps that'd be something that needs to be in there. I don't know. It might be, might be messy. It might be just say leave it to the DC scheme to do, but it does feel, like, like you say, like a serving suggestion of... Yeah, no, absolutely. And to be honest, as a, you know, as a representative from a firm that, that deals with pension scheme administration on a significant number of schemes, you might hate me for saying this, but it might even be helpful if trustees were able to use the pension dashboard to ask for the information on other schemes that their members have got. Now, again, you get, there's all sorts of issues and hurdles mm. to get over there in terms of data security and everything else. But actually, that, they, that could be very useful, even mm. if it was just the existence of other schemes, um, mm. not necessarily personal data and whatever. But I don't know, that might help them in their communications to those members. I'm not thinking immediate. I'm thinking in the longer term where this mm. might go. But it, Because if we, if we keep the reliance entirely upon the members and the individuals, we know from past experience that that doesn't always work particularly well. Um, we can improve and we can help, and there's a lot the industry can do to get people engaged. But ultimately, sometimes some people need things pushed to them. You know, mm. they won't necessarily go out and get it themselves. Sometimes they do need someone to actually do some of the heavy lifting for them mm. uh, before they'll become fully engaged with these things. So I don't know. I mean, that, that, as I say, that's just a bit of an off-the-wall thing that will probably never, ever happen. But conceptually, it would be quite a good thing if it could. Yeah, you know? no, definitely thinking about. Yeah. Imagine the workload then, David. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Get even yeah. less sleep. <laughs> yeah, and Ra- Rachel would have to go off and promote that as a really good thing that then... <laughs> the rest of the team would then have to, have to do and well i mean for advisors as well as trustees you yeah. know for advisors that that would be really really yeah. useful as well you know you're absolutely right it almost would feed into that wealth of governance information that you go through with employers and scheme trustees when you're considering how schemes running you know that that wealth of information could only improve the member outcomes yeah, I mean, it could, yeah, it could be done. I mean, it's a bit like the state pension forecast now. You get financial advisors that will do that on behalf of their clients because they get the authorities to do it, and then they can go into the system and, you know, obviously obtain that information. There's no reason why uh, advisors couldn't do that in terms of the dashboard, and there's no reason why pension schemes couldn't obtain that authority from their members to, to potentially do those inquiries on their behalf um, and use that information to help support them, you know, in, in their retirement. It might be something employers would do for, you know, actively employed people to start off with perhaps rather than necessarily everyone. Um, but I, I can see I can see that being some benefit, really, rather than relying on the individuals to yeah. do all the heavy lifting. Um, yeah. OK, I just want to have one last question for you, Chris, if that's all right. Unless there's something yeah. you're really burning to get off your chest. No, no. OK, no. well, it's GMP equalisation. That was all I wanted to ask about. Oh, very yeah. niche, very exciting. Big finish, well, big finish. I've got, I've got a burning design not to talk about a certain topic, <laughs> and that might be the one, but I think it's probably, it could probably be a miss not to talk about it, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're here. Um, <laughs> oh, it was just, just to get your sense of how you're communicating that with members. Because it's, it's something that schemes are now, you know, we've been talking about it for a couple of years, you know, doing the detail, doing the ho- making the decisions, trustees working through it, and you get to that final bit of, Right, I need to tell the members what we've been doing and what it means for them. 
Um, and what strategies, I don't know, just interested in what strategies you're, you're considering using or are using just to communicate that with members? Yeah, I mean, I, I may not be the best of people at 2020 to talk to you about this because I tend to deal with the smaller schemes. So mine are all sub 250 million schemes and they, generally speaking, are the ones last to the party on, on these sorts of things. So I've got, a, I've got a couple of schemes that are going through GMP equalisation and we've communicated to members in respect of their transfer values. Uh, mm-hmm. So if anybody takes a transfer value, you know, there, there's some statements on those transfer values that talk about um, the fact that, you know, the actual pension benefits uh, that are quoted aren't equalised, but the transfer value has got an allowance for equalisation in there. Um, but in terms of actually writing out to people, say we've done it, it's all done and dusted, and this is what it means to you. I've not got any schemes that are at that stage. But I think it's one of these things that, if you want to, what's my view on it? I mean, my view on it at the moment would be that it's a, it's a hellishly complicated thing to explain to people that probably has a minimal impact. <laughs> and mm. to, to some extent... Um, you would probably almost be better not even bothering to, to tell them that something's changed because it's a statutory right that they, they get this extra uplift if they're entitled to one. Um, and actually, you, you know, you could almost just say, you know, your benefits have been uplifted. Or if you didn't even tell them, they probably wouldn't know their benefits have been uplifted because they don't really ever get any figures that are absolutely guaranteed until they reach the point of retirement anyway. So mm. um, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, have you got any sort of views, Rachel or David, in terms of in terms of that, in terms of what? You may or may not have seen on any schemes. I certainly haven't seen anything that says we've, it's all done and dusted and here you go, here's, mm. here's a paragraph wording to explain it that you're definitely going to understand. I think I think it's definitely keeping it simple, like you say. Yeah. I think you have to tell them, that, yeah, if they're a pensioner and your pension's going yeah. to change. I think deferreds are different. I don't think you would, you would probably even, like you say, probably not tell them anything. You might have to mention something just because people talk to each other. Members do sometimes communicate and they'll be like, oh, Steve's, you know, had his uplifted one, had mine uplifted sort of thing. You know, you have to say something. But I think, yeah, the letter has is, is got to be as simple as possible. This this happened and there's, and there's a little fact sheet or I'm, I've even asked if we can make a video, you know, explaining what GMP equalisation is in a two minute video would be much more useful than a, you know, a five page fact sheet going in about in 1978. <laughs> and 19, you know, is that really going to make people, are they going to learn anything? But you might have a little video that just says, you, know, you contracted out between 78 and 97 and then, you know, we realised that it was unequal, you know, and then we realised we should do something about it. And now we've done something and you'll have received a letter telling you what the impact on your pension is. Nothing to worry about. You can't lose. Off you go sort of thing. That's kind yeah, of what I think. I, you I think you, you've made a very good point, though, there, that perhaps the, the issue is more about because the ones that you're going to uplift it for, they're never really likely to come back and query why you've uplifted it. I suppose you might get some that want, want evidence as to how you've done the calculation and have you definitely got it right. Mm. Um, there'll be some people who are quite analytical in that way. But it's more the ones where you haven't applied an uplift, but as you say, their colleague or somebody they play golf with or whatever mm. it might be, you know, they've had theirs uplifted. And because we, we know that they all talk together, they socialise as pensioners, which is great that mm. they do that. But it does create some communication issues sometimes where you've You've done something for one member that doesn't apply to others mm. and they, they, you know, they don't necessarily understand why. So I think the communication probably needs to go to those that aren't going to get something mm. maybe as much as it does to, you know, yeah. to, to those that are. Um, well, also, especially, yeah, you know, we will stop talking about GMP globalisation, but especially because their, their, their little crossover point might not have happened yet. It might be, look, you've not had anything now, but you might have something in five, ten years time, you know, when the, you know, the, the comparator sex is, is, is higher. Oh, Incentive to live a bit longer. Well, well, quite. Yeah, absolutely. Hang on. <laughs> Don't go <laughs> anywhere. That, that <laughs> yeah, is a bleak view of that. 
It's a it's big a view of life. working lives and retirement, yeah. isn't it, that that's what you're hanging on for? Yeah, I'm not going to die because of my GM organization <laughs> step up. might be £10.50 or something a year. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for that. That was really, really good. Okay, no problems. Okay, so now it's time for our myth of the month. We've still got a list to get through. So um, the one this one this month is um, one that actually annoys me probably the most. Um, it's sort of the thing that pops up in the Sunday Times when you have some celebrity or sports star and they're asked about their finances and they, they say, oh, I don't believe in pensions. Property, property is my pension. So my property or my house is my pension is our myth. So uh, Rachel, take a gulp of water and go for it <laughs> absolutely this really is a deep breath myth isn't it <laughs> this myth is a very persistent one um, and it really appeals to people because especially those closer to retirement have seen property values rise significantly during their working lives and property as an asset class is very well understood in the uk and we even watch programs on tv about people buying and selling houses it's like a national hobby isn't it mm. So it, it is important to mention, whilst we are myth-busting here, that property is a very valuable asset for a lot of people. And for some, the value held in their home might well form part of their assets used to fund retirement. But it would be very dangerous to suggest that your home could actually be your pension. And the main reasons for this, uh, I'm going to run through now. So uh, one of the first reasons, uh, whilst property is high value, it's also not very liquid meaning that you can't rely on being able to access the money held in your home quickly. So anyone that's bought or sold property will tell you that even in a buoyant market, transactions take many weeks, if not many months, uh, due to complex processes, legal hurdles. And in slower markets, this can be much longer as you try and find a suitable buyer. So that means a big timing risk if you're hinging your retirement income hopes solely on selling a house. It's also worth remembering that your home is actually where you live so if you sell it to realize the value to fund your retirement where are you going to live so will you rent in which case you've got rent to pay through your retirement what if your landlord chooses to sell as you're hitting your 92nd birthday and you've got to face a house move that you weren't planning for so you know that that isn't straightforward will you buy somewhere smaller even for those that can downsize, you know, they've maybe had quite a big property during the working lives. Even for those that can downsize, you've got to take care to make sure that you've got an accurate understanding of how much money you'll actually release from that. So think about things like stamp duty. Think about legal fees. Think about moving costs. They'll all take a bite out of that money that you release. And smaller properties also aren't as much cheaper as you might imagine. So where I live is a great example um, because bungalows command quite a premium as there are a lot of older people looking for housing. So even if you're selling quite a big family house, the small bungalow that you're ideally looking for for your retirement property really might not be that much cheaper. So we are seeing equity release uh, becoming an option that might mean that you can keep living in your property uh, whilst you release some value. But the value is normally capped if you're looking at that. So, again, we always loop back to the theme of make sure you take advice uh, before you put any of these uh, choices into action. I think coming back to some of the other main problems with viewing your house as your pension, especially for those of you who are younger uh, through your savings journey, 
it's important to think about whether house prices are likely to keep rising over future working lives as much as they have over the last 30 years. So if we look at 1980, uh, we had house prices, prices which were about four times uh, national average earnings. At the moment, they're over eight times national average earnings. Is it realistic that that is going to keep going up as quickly, considering how hard it already is to get on the property ladder now? You know, looking ahead, our future generations going to benefit quite the same as current generations approaching retirement benefited from those rising values. And of course, without getting too technical, tax relief is the biggie. So money used to buy property is out of your net income. Often you've got to pay back interest as well on a mortgage over your term. Whereas mortgage, uh, whereas money invested in a pension uh, gets boosted by tax relief. So pensions are therefore most tax efficient. And especially it's worth noting we aren't really focusing on buy to let property here. But if you're talking about property being your pension, some people mean buy to let. That's especially tax inefficient these days compared with your uh, pension savings. So really important to consider that. I think sort of summing up this myth, uh, Aviva released a statistic based on ONS data recently that summed this up for me really well. And what they did was they compared pensions, property and cash across Great Britain. So three big asset classes that we tend to all build up. And what they looked at was the financial value of each compared with how well each of those was understood. And pensions were by far the highest financial value, so the most valuable asset that we collectively own, but also by far the least well understood. Mm. So that really is crazy. In a typical year, we'll spend longer looking at TripAdvisor, trying to figure out which hotel to book for our holiday than we will trying to take the time to understand our pension saving. And it's so valuable to us. So I guess to leave you with a thought on this myth if we had half half as many primetime programmes devoted to pensions as we do to property, <laughs> we might all be in a better place uh, in terms of understanding where our financial assets sit in terms mm. of what we're trying to achieve in our life plans and objectives. Oh, that's interesting. That last point was really good because, you know, Martin Lewis does his half an hour live show on pensions a year. He seems That seems to be a thing he does. He did one February last year. He did one February again this year. And we see engagement go up. People phone up, ask for transfer values, ask for retirement quotes, ask for details about their pension. Yeah. A direct relation. There's a causation, correlation doesn't always equal causation, this kind of thing. But in this case, I think it does. And that point about, yeah, if we'd had more programmes, just, it'd have to be, you know, that exciting, I suppose. There's only so much you can do, but just more programmes, just thinking about. But to be fair, you'd pensions. think that with property, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, you can list, even without thinking very hard, probably 10 property programmes. And again, yeah. you wouldn't think it was that exciting. <laughs> but, you know, your pension's probably more important in terms of what your life's going to look like. Absolutely. Yeah. OK. Thanks, Rachel. That's that myth busted. I think next next time we might have to be like, pensions are boring because... Because that again, that just because you were t- you were touching on it there, that end bit. So maybe we'll do pensions are boring next time. You have to, you have to tune in to find out. Okay, so thanks for that, Rachel. Um, so that's it for today. Um, we'd like to thank our guest Chris Haywood from Twenty Twenty for that really interesting conversation about member uh, communication and engagement. Touched on lots of topics. So I hope you enjoy that that part of it. And thank you for listening. Uh, good, good, goodbye from me and uh, goodbye from Rachel. 
Goodbye. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.